0: think about what we covered last week, really our our study last week was bookended by two uh, large-scale miracles, the feeding of the 5,000, and then we finished up last week in in Mark chapter 8 with the feeding of the 4,000. And and one of the kind of secondary storylines that we talked about was this progression or this maturity of the apostles. And and this is going to be kind of running uh, alongside everything that we see. We've certainly talked about the reception of the gospel at large, And we've noticed that the rulers, the Pharisees, the wealthy, the powerful individuals are the ones that are so often struggling to grasp these concepts. They don't see any need to change. They don't see any need to upheave their lives because they've got a really good life right now. It's the ones that have nothing in this life. It's the poor. It's the sick. It's the outcast. It's the one that has no physical hope that are latching on to this message because of the tremendous hope that it offers and yes it requires tremendous change but with that change comes hope but again as i've mentioned we are going to see as we go throughout this progression of the apostles as they are coming from you know being being weak in their faith to coming to a limited understanding to eventually progressing to a fuller understanding to you know beyond the scope of our study going to the pillars of the church and the teachers of the gospel in the first century uh, if you would go ahead and, and open up with me to Mark chapter 8. As I mentioned, we finished up last week with this feeding of the 4,000, and it's just on the heels of this in Mark chapter 8 that the Pharisees come seeking a sign. This is Mark chapter 8 and in verse 11. And the parallel to this is in Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. Um, and, and this is this is interesting because uh, in Matthew's account, it's a little bit longer. And what I like about Matthew's account is that he actually rebukes them because he says, you know, you guys can see so much. Uh, He says, you can actually read the skies and the seasons and the weather. And he refers to uh, what's even a common saying today, that uh, red sky at night, sailors delight, red sky in morning, sailors take warning. And he said, you guys can see these things around you. You can read the weather, but you don't have any understanding of something that is far more consequential than the weather. You don't have an understanding of what's going on around you. The Pharisees have come and they've just asked for a sign. So just, just for a second, think about that. We, we've just discussed these two large-scale feedings, feeding of the 5,000, feeding of the 4,000. And these Pharisees say, hey, uh, c- can we see a sign? And he says, listen, you're not, you're not looking for a sign. You're not coming here with an authentic intent to learn. You clearly don't want to know, you know by what authority I'm doing these things. He says, you're not going to get a sign. In Matthew's account, he says no sign is going to be given to you except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. And this is actually something that he's told them before. If you go back to Matthew chapter 12 and in verse 40, it says the same thing. No sign is going to be given to you except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. Uh, Of course, he's pointing forward, thinking about his death, his burial for three days, and then his resurrection. Uh, I, I put up there I actually thought this was really good. I Googled it after I typed it because I thought, man, this is a good line. A sign is only useful if you are looking for a destination. Nobody else has said that. That's, that's, that's a Brian Walsh. Like, that's an original. So if you want to put that on a t-shirt or a tattoo, whatever, it's not trademarked. But, but just think about this position that they are in. Uh, they have no desire to look beyond the present. They're not looking for a destination. They're not looking for a change. They're not looking. So wh- what purpose would a sign be? Jesus has done, at this point, perhaps thousands of signs. It is well known to everybody, his ability to heal, his ability to work miracles, his ability to do these things. So he says, no sign is going to be given to you. As we progress on throughout this account in Mark, this is verses 14 down through verse 21. As he gets into the boat, he now provides a warning to his disciples and his followers and he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And of course, we see that on the heels of this, he's telling them, listen, you have got to watch out. Uh, let's see. Is it, are these the slides from last week? Oh, okay. Yeah, these are the slides from last week. So, um, so there, this, this part isn't going to be in there. But he, he is warning them. He's warning them in verses 14 through 21 about the leaven of the leaven of the Pharisees. And, of course, he's telling him, listen, you've got to watch out for this attitude. This attitude that is so temporal and short-term and focus can spread. And and you guys have to think beyond that. You have to think in spiritual terms. You have to think in transformative terms. And what do do the disciples in the boat, what do they think when he tells them to beware of the the leaven of the Pharisees? Oh, man, we forgot bread. Jesus knows about it. It, it, again, I just, I put myself in his position and I think, I, I don't know if he cried or laughed or did both, <laughs> you know, but you're like, guys, I, again, to go back to this. I just provided thousands of people with bread and you're worried because you forgot bread. Like number one, if bread was actually an issue, I could take care of it. You know? So if you're, if you're sitting there like, oh man, I can't believe he knows that we forgot the bread. <laughs> guys, don't worry about the bread. But, but even beyond that, even beyond that, you know, we had that whole thing that we talked about last week. He feeds, he feeds these individuals, and, and after the feeding of the 5,000, he goes on, and what does he at length talk about? He talks about the true bread, the bread of life. He says, listen, you getting a meal right now does nothing. That is short-term. I'm not here just to provide you with a meal. I'm here to talk about more important things. I'm here to provide you with something that is going to sustain you, not only for this life, but for all of eternity. All of eternity. And that just gives you an indication of again where they are right now. They are, they are making progress, but they are definitely still babes. They're still focused on the short term. They're still focused on status, thinking, oh man, we're we're gonna get in trouble because we were supposed to bring something for them and now we forgot it. They're just not not quite where not quite where they need to be. Um, these are these are the slides from last week, and so there's gonna be some things that, that may not that may not quite quite match up. Uh, but, but that's, that's all right. We'll go through that. Let's go on to verses 22 through 30. And this, this is something that's only recorded in Mark's account, but I think this is just perfect. And, And I, and I really believe that this is, is relayed here in direct correlation to what we've been talking about with the maturation of the apostles. So we have this occasion where they're in Bethsaida. So you remember our little map of the Sea of Galilee? Bethsaida's right up there, uh, right up there to the north, maybe a little bit slightly to the east. So you've got Bethsaida up there, just a little bit to the east of Capernaum. He was regularly in Bethsaida. But he's there in Bethsaida, and they bring a blind man to him, and they ask him to touch him and to heal him. So again, we have discussed that Jesus can heal people in a variety of ways. And, And I don't I'm not going to claim to understand exactly why he would choose to do things a different way. If you remember last time, he healed this individual. He put his fingers in his ears, and then he put a little bit of spit and actually put it on his tongue to hear this individual that was, that was mute. And so now we have, again, Jesus utilizing this this idea, this very physical touch. So in verse 23, it says, he takes the blind man by the hand. He leads him out of the town. So again, he kind of, he kind of takes him. Uh, It takes him away from the crowds. He spits on his eyes and puts his hands on them, and he asks him if he sees anything. He looks up and he said, I see men like trees walking. So he doesn't fully have his sight restored to him. He has this blurry vision. Then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up, and he was restored and saw everyone clearly. So we have a progression that is here, and I really think that this is relating to this progression that is also going on with the apostles. The apostles are in this intermediate stage. They are not blind. Who are the blind ones? The Pharisees. He tells them that plenty of times. Listen, you guys are the blind ones. You guys are the blind ones. Nowhere. You're not seeing anything. His apostles and his disciples, they are this individual in many ways that has this blurry vision. They have come to the master. They have come to the right source. They are are on the journey. They know what they need to be doing. They They just can't see it clearly yet. And eventually, they're going to get to the point where they can see clearly. It, that, that's, that's the only way that I can, I can kind of reconcile this, because obviously, Christ has the power to completely heal in an instant. There are individuals that come up and just, without his foreknowledge, touch the hem of his garment, and they are healed instantly. So it can't be that, that he does something and, oh, I, I didn't do it the right way. I didn't, I didn't rub just the exact amount of spit in, in, the, you know, in the iris the way I need to. That, that, that can't be. Obviously, there's no limit to the power that the Son of God has. So this has got to be presented to us for, for a reason. And the reason that I can think of is to present where so many of his followers are on this journey. That they are, they are making progress. They have come to the right source. But yet, they still have, they still have this blurry vision. As you follow up on this, and I think this, this actually kind of, kind of highlights, uh, Mark's account is fairly short, Mark uh, chapter 8, verses 27 through 30. We can go back over to Matthew's account. Uh, this is probably one that we're a little bit more familiar with. Uh, this is Matthew chapter 16. But after this, as they are on the road, uh, he asks them, he says, if you look in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 13, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? So they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, some Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he puts it directly to them. Who do you say that I am? And Peter answers boldly and correctly, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He understands that he is the anointed one. He is the one that the Old Testament scriptures have been talking about. All the prophecies of the Old Testament are fulfilled in Jesus. He also understands where he comes from he says, you are the son of the living God. You're not a man. You are deity. You are the son of God. He understands that, you know? So, so as you see, they're not blind. They, they they know, they know enough. They're just not fully all the way there. And Jesus answers that, that that he is correct. Um, you know, he says, blessed are you. This is verse 17. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my Father who is in heaven. And then he goes on to say in verse 18 that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. The gates of Hades shall not prevail against it, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This, this confession, this understanding that Jesus is the one that the Old Testament scriptures have been pointing towards, that Jesus is deity, he is the son of God, and not just a mere man. This is the absolute bedrock foundation of the church. And that's what he is saying here. He says, I will build my church on this understanding. These two truths brought together. Now, there's, there's certainly much that's made over uh, those Greek words, how he's just called him Simon, but then he calls him Peter. And so, you know, people have said, okay, if you look at Peter, is this word for a little stone that can be moved. Uh, men can be moved around. Peter is certainly going to be moved around. But he says, on this rock, and this is the word that's referring to something large, like a mountain, that cannot be moved. So men can be moved. Men can waver. Men can, men can have faults. But this truth, there's no wavering to this. This is bedrock. This is the firm foundation. Again, thinking about that maturation process, the, the apostles, even Peter himself, they are going to be the ones that are going to provide the keys to the kingdom. Uh, what, what, is, what does a key do? Well, it gives you access, right? Something that has been locked, something that has been inaccessible, something that you have not been able to get to. Up to this point in time, even those that may desire to see the kingdom cannot gain access to the kingdom. Christ has not died on the cross yet, he has not been resurrected. But these apostles are gonna be the ones that are going to be able to provide access. They're going to have the keys to unlock that door to provide access. Peter himself, along with the other apostles on the day of Pentecost, is going to provide access to those individuals that are there. Even later, Peter is gonna be the one that is gonna to go, to, go to Cornelius. He's gonna to go to the Gentiles. He is going to provide access to the kingdom. So they are going to mature to that point. They are, they are, they are on the way there, they're just not quite there yet. Uh, any, other, any other thoughts on that before we move on? Yeah, uh, John, uh, just go ahead. Jesus to Peter,
1: didn't get this man, Father of heaven he So, how did God do that? Well, it was through the signs that Jesus had done, how he did it. So, if, if Peter and the apostles do it because of those signs everyone else should have too including the Pharisee
2: Mm -hmm.
0: yeah that's a good point
1: was the evidence that God had provided
0: we'll talk a little bit more about that if we can make it into uh, our study on on John chapter 7 hey and and uh and uh, Chris hadn't one Lee sorry uh you know if you remember back in John chapter 5 he talks about that fourfold witness that Jesus was not there just providing witness of, of himself the Old Testament scriptures had provided witness of him. John the Baptist had provided witness to him. He himself had provided witness through the miracles that he worked with authority. And the Father had provided witness to him. So, so you're right. This was not something that, that Peter just kind of stumbled upon. Yeah, he, he had seen the evidence, and, he was, and he, was voicing, he was voicing what he had seen. Chris? I find it interesting that in the New King James Version... I think that's the one you read, uh, verse 19 ends with, and what are you, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven, and yet in the New American Standard, it, it changes it a little bit, mm-hmm. um, where whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven, so the, the idea is that the direction is still coming from heaven, it's not yep. like something the apostles do on earth changes something in heaven, Yeah, um, it, it makes more sense in my, in my mind at least yeah and, and if you and if you go back and, and, and you do and you do a study of those greek words that 's probably a, a slightly more accurate rendering um, of the the actual tense and, and that 's one of the things the Greek the Greek has the ability to convey you know present past tenses in, in a way that our English language does not always convey, and that probably is a slightly more accurate um, it's not saying that, as you correctly pointed out, whatever you will bind on earth will be bound. It's not necessarily looking to the future. It is something that is able to convey multiple tenses in, in, in one. At least that, that's my understanding of it. So it, it, is, it is not giving them the authority to, to go on and say, hey, I'm going to make this rule and, and, and God will be okay with it. Hey, I'm going to make this rule and God will be okay with it. They are providing access to something that is already there that the church the church has already been already been designed the qualifications for entrance into that church that this has already been designed these things have been in place uh, in in god's mind from before the foundation of the world they are going to be the ones that are going to be providing access to it so a good point thank you chris for bringing that out any any other thoughts before we before we move on certainly a, a consequential a consequential moment a consequential statement and, and I want you to notice also, uh, and, and we could talk about this at any point in time, but there, there is a transition that is going on. Um, if, you, if you go back to Mark's account now, if you go back to Mark, um, really, really chapter eight there in verse 31, Jesus is beginning to trust and to talk to his apostles about some pretty weighty, important things. He is beginning to talk to them in greater detail uh, about the kingdom. You know, you go all the way back to the very beginning of his ministry. And if you think about our timeline, you know, are we at the beginning, the middle, or the end of this Galilean ministry? We're at the end, right? We're at the end. So, so we have, regardless of how long it, it, it is, we are at the very tail end of this Galilean ministry. We, we have maybe just a couple of weeks left before the Galilean ministry is going to be over. He's going to be spending some time closer to Judea. As we'll discuss later on, we we might be maybe five six months away from his crucifixion. So so we're we're getting down we're getting to crunch time, and Jesus is going to be talking about some some very weighty things. He's also going to be talking a lot about his death. His death is coming up. Um, Again, this kind of goes along with that idea. The apostles are going to have to grow up pretty quick. They're going to have to grow up pretty quick. And so he is starting to to lay the groundwork to talk to them about some of these things. If you go to Mark chapter 8, verses 31 and following, uh, it says that he was telling them, listen, I'm I'm going to suffer some things. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to die. And uh, again, Peter, got the good, you got the bad. But Peter, his his response to this is is no. Uh, If you look in verse 32, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Damn, man, peters Peter's got some boldness, <laughs> you know? Uh, he, he's got some boldness. Lee, uh, Jason's got a comment. He, when, when the master starts telling him these things, Peter's like, mm-mm, no, let me, let me take you aside. Let me, let me tell you how this is gonna go. And, and, and Jesus immediately rebukes him and admonishes him to, to think about the bigger picture and to think about the spiritual. Jason?
2: Well, and, I, and I think he goes back to one of your sub-bullets. They didn't see the kingdom clearly. I, yeah. I, I think, and you have to believe Peter... Granted, he, he just said he believed he's the Christ of God. It's the nature of the kingdom. And I think that the, the wow. interesting thing to me is obviously the apostles didn't understand the people that the disciples that were following Christ. And we kind of scratch our head and wonder that. But it's still happening today. I mean, mm-hmm. you think about the majority of the Christian world is looking at those premillennialist ideas and they don't truly understand the nature of the kingdom. They're looking forward to a thousand year reign. Mm-hmm. So we still see those errors, Yeah, they're, they're wrapped up in the physical rather than thinking spiritual. And the same thing happened then. They're thinking about a physical Israel. It's going to be reestablished where the Pharisees, the Sadducees, those leaders are still going to be in place. And so when he says, beware the, the leaven of the Pharisees, they're thinking physical. Yeah. And so I just think it's interesting that it's happening then, it's happening now.
0: Yeah. I had in my notes from last week, I had like three paragraphs. We're talking about the feedings, about how many churches today are going after feedings. You know, and and that exact exact same point that we have not we have not changed much. We clearly don't see the kingdom the way that it's supposed to be seen, and and especially all around us, we see we see churches, we see religious organizations that have gotten away from the kingdom, and they're focused on the here and now. They are focused on the bread. They are focused on providing bread. They are focused on providing uh, social amenities. They are not clearly seeing the kingdom, and that's and that's an excellent point, excellent point, Jason. But yeah, that's that's where he is. They're, They're still. They're in that blurry vision stage. Um, Jesus immediately does correct him though. He says, listen, no, we're going to head this off right now. There's no, okay, we'll we'll talk about it later. Uh, You know, you'll see. It's like, no. And and you think about the strong language there. Get behind me, Satan. There's there's no quibbling. There's no equivocating there. When you talk like that, again, like I, I said, there's no, there's no middle ground. When you talk like this, you are an agent of Satan. You are on Satan's side. You are opposing my will and my work. No middle ground. So a pretty, pretty stern admonishment. And he tells them, and I think that the next couple of verses actually tie into this. Verses 34 down through verse 36. If we are focused on these things, if we are focused on the here and now, if we are focused on preserving our own lives, preserving our own status, we're going to lose. We have completely missed the mark. Verse 35, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. What was Jesus willing to do? He was willing to lose his own life so that we might save ours. And that's what he calls all of us to do as well. He says, you know, just think about it. Verse 36, even if you were to profit everything, even if I were to establish a physical kingdom, and we were to overthrow the Romans and they were to be, everybody got bread every single day, there was no sickness, in the grand scheme of things, it's still nothing. It's still temporal. It's still here and now. And he's trying to get them to see the kingdom a little bit more clearly. Uh, but I do, I do think it's interesting. Um, so this, now, now this is, now this isn't, all right, all right this, these are the current notes. All right, so we're back. Um, I do think it's interesting. I, I noticed this. I counted four times between Mark chapter eight and Mark chapter 10, and, and there might, there might be more, but I just noticed four times Jesus is now discussing his death. So again, we're, we're, coming to the, we're coming to the end of the Galilean ministry. We're coming to the end period of, of his overall ministry. And he is really starting to transition and to try to prepare his disciples, try to prepare his apostles for what is going to come. All right. Let's go to, let's go to chapter 9. Chapter 9, just, uh, again, an absolutely fantastic monumental event taking place here. And this is in Mark chapter nine. Uh, this, is also, this is also recorded um, over, over in, in Matthew's gospel. But several days later, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on the mountain with him. And it says that he is transfigured. Uh, not, not a word that we certainly use a lot. Uh, the word there is where we get our word metamorphosis. And so we know, you know, metamorphosis might be a little more familiar to us. We know that a change is taking place. You think about metamorphosis, uh, a change is taking place, transformed. This is actually the same word that's used later on in the New Testament when it talks about us needing to not be conformed, but be transformed, be changed. So you are not the same. So Jesus, this individual that they are with day in and day out as they go up on this mountain, um, Jesus is transformed. He is changed. There's a metamorphosis that takes place. Uh, in, in Mark's account, it describes his clothes became. This is Mark chapter nine verse three. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white, like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. In Matthew's account, it talks about his face, this brilliant radiance that came from his face. And then, as if as if that was not as if that was not enough, who else appears? Moses and Elijah. Individuals, individuals that have been gone from this earth for a very, very long period of time. Moses and Elijah. Mark chapter 9 and verse 4 it says Elijah appeared to them with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. Uh, I, I believe it's in Matthew's account that mentions they were talking with Jesus about what was to come, about, about the resurrection, uh, about the crucifixion on the cross and the things that were to come. Peter. Uh, again, never at a loss for words here. Uh, and, and I don't think his intentions are, are necessarily misguided. Uh, chapter, chapter 9, verse 5, Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. No, no more honest words than that. He didn't know what to say, but he was gonna say something anyway. Uh, I think I think what he's describing here is that uh, you know, a tabernacle is like just a little dwelling place. So he sees Moses and Elijah. He does not know what to say. So he's like, all right, let, let's provide you some shelter. If you guys are going to be here for a while, you've been gone. You probably don't have a place to stay. All right. What, what can we do here? <laughs> you know, I, 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 you gotta, you gotta love Peter. You gotta love Peter. He, he wants to do something. Even if it's not the right thing, even if he doesn't have a clue what he's going to do. He's all right, we're here. Let, let's do something for you. Um, Again, probably just an indication of where he's at, uh, where he's at in his maturation process. He sees Moses and Elijah, individuals that have been dead for a really long time, and his first thought is, man, we better get them a place to stay. Still just not quite there, not quite there. But what I do think is interesting is to think about, again, what a, what a monumental faith-building event this is for those individuals, so you think about the people that he took, these individuals that are, in, that are in the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. These are folks that are going to be pillars. They are going to be the ones that when Jesus is gone, you know, they are going to take on a leadership role. Now, clearly, as we mentioned before, they have had plenty of opportunities to see evidence right in front of them. But they now have just an absolutely incredible event that they are the only ones that have access to that is going to build their faith in a way that... I, I can hardly imagine anything else would. And not only do they see Jesus transformed with Moses and Elijah, but then it mentions in verse 7, there's this cloud that comes and overshadows them. And a voice comes out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. We mentioned earlier on, and this was back in the very beginning when Jesus was baptized by John, it's not entirely clear to me whether everybody saw what happened or whether just John saw what happened when the, the, the dove comes down and it mentions that this, this is my beloved son. That, that could have been something that maybe only John saw. I, I don't know. Um, but this, again, is something that these individuals would have access to. They were able to see it. And what I think, what I think really brings this out is when you go to Second Peter. Go to Second Peter chapter 1. Um, and when you see what he talks about there in chapter 1 in verse 16... When he's talking to them about the prophetic word confirmed, he says, We did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word confirmed. This is Peter at the very end of his life. And at the very end of his life, when he is writing to these individuals and he is trying to assure them of the gospel that he has taught, that they have believed in, what does he go back to? He goes back to the transfiguration. He goes back to this time when he saw Moses and Elijah there on the mountain with Jesus. You think about Moses and Elijah, the first thing that came to my mind was the law and the prophets the law and the prophets. How many times did Jesus refer to the Old Testament as the law and the prophets? You know, maybe a little bit of an oversimplification, but those are the two big things there. Moses, the lawgiver, uh, Elijah, this individual who is a prophet. And Jesus is the one who fulfilled both of those things. He was there to fulfill the law, the Old Testament law. He was also there to fulfill the prophetic word. So Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets together, Jesus fulfilled that. So you have all these things kind of coalescing together. And that allows Peter, at near the end of his life, when he is seeking to reassure these individuals, say, listen, I've I've got no doubt. These were not fables. These were not stories. I saw with my own eyes. I saw this one who fulfilled the law and the prophets. I heard a voice from God that says, this is my son, hear him. So the words that Peter himself had just uttered not that long before you are the Christ, the Son of God. He knew it, and now he has, he has that confirmed. So I, I can only imagine that for individuals that in just a very short amount of time are going to be put through a, a tremendous trial of their faith, this is going to be something that they can return to. They can return back to this as the foundation for building their faith. Any, any thoughts, uh, anything that anybody else wants to add? Yeah, John's got something on the, on the transfiguration.
1: Hear ye him just reminds me of Hebrews chapter one verses one and two, basically says the same thing. in the past times past, God spoke to us in various ways and through prophets and so forth. But today He speaks to us through His Son. So mm-hmm. that's, that's the hear ye him. Yeah. One other thing is, chapter nine verse one there in Mark, said the kingdom was going to come during the lifetime of some of these people standing here. Yeah. So there are the some that teach well. God wasn't able to establish the kingdom, so he established the church instead and some things like that. But uh, the Bible says it's also in Luke chapter 9, verse 27, the same statement. Mm-hmm. So, And, of course, good Bible students know that happened in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost.
0: Yeah. Again, giving them clear vision, clear vision on the kingdom. Carrie's got a comment back there, Lee?
1: Brian, I I couldn't help but think about uh, when you use the word metamorphosis. This is an indication or confirmation of the deity of Christ and his glory and majesty. Yeah, that's a good point. But then I also thought about 1 John 3, 2. Because 1 John 3, 2 says, we know not when he appears. Well, let me start at the beginning. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. So it affirms our glory and our majesty be, through being children of God, what is coming for us.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and sometimes, again, we think about, you know, if you can't see the destination, how are you going to recognize the sign? You know, this was this was giving them. Here's a little peek ahead. You know, here here is a look not only at the glory that Christ that Christ had because he was the Son of God, but that's that's a great point, Carrie. I appreciate you making that connection, giving them a little bit of peek ahead of the glory that would come. Excellent point, excellent point. Uh, let, let's let's move on and try to try to cover a little bit more. Um, if you go on throughout this account in Mark chapter nine, verses fourteen through thirty two. Uh, this is talking about an individual. Uh, this is a healing of a boy that is brought to them. Uh, this is, and I think I'm tying, I'm tying this back. Uh, there are probably other applications that can be made. I'm tying this back to the maturation process of the apostles and the disciples. This individual is brought to them. They're not able to heal this boy. Christ is able to heal this individual. But when the disciples come to him and they say, why, why couldn't we do this? Um, this is in Mark chapter nine and verse 28, when he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting uh, a, a little bit earlier on. Uh, and I think it actually might be in Matthew's account. He, he talks about, you know, their, their lack of faith. Oh, you've little faith. Uh, he talks about in, in Mark's account a faithless generation. Um, and so the, I think the takeaway for me is that There are occasions that are going to require greater faith. And looking ahead, keeping the big picture in mind, this transition is occurring. There is going to come a time when you are going to need greater faith. There's going to come a time when you are going to endure trials and tribulations, where you are going to be persecuted for for my name's sake. You are going to need greater faith if you are going to endure and you are going to remain faithful, because he's going to leave them. And he brings that up in verses 30 through 32. Uh, of mark chapter 9 there in verse 31 the son of man is being betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him again no equivocation hey guys you know we might not make it out of this one you know sometimes you hear that kind of that speech before the big battle i don't know if we're going to make it out of this no there's none of that the son of man is being betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him and after he is killed he will rise on the third day but they did not understand this saying, and they were afraid to ask him. So he is telling them in no uncertain terms, this is what's going to happen. And they're still struggling to grasp that. Uh, kind of as, as indication of that, as you go on to this, this, uh, this next part of Mark chapter 9, you kind of think about where they're at. Um, uh, before, before, we get, before we get to that part, um, this, I think, actually ties in with it. I'll, I'll, put, I'll put them both up there. Mark chapter 9, verses 33 through 37 is Jesus admonishing the apostles not to focus on this earthly status. I think it actually ties in with something that's brought up in Matthew chapter 17. In Matthew chapter 17, verses 24 through 27, uh, we have this account where they come to an area, I believe it's Capernaum, uh, without flipping back over there, comes to Capernaum and somebody comes to Peter and says, hey, does your master not pay the temple tax? Peter goes to Jesus and Jesus uh, Jesus says, you know, he gives them kind of this, this question about who is supposed to pay the temple tax. Uh, is it the son or is it the foreigners? But then he provides miraculously for both he and Peter's tax. He tells Peter to go and to fish. And when he pulls up a fish, there's going to be uh, enough in the fish's mouth for both of them. But what I, what I think is interesting there about that, and again, this, this lens that I'm viewing things through, trying to connect these two, is not to focus on earthly greatness. Not to focus on, well, maybe I'm too good for this. I'm the son of God. You know, when you come to this temple, who are you worshiping? You know, he he is saying, listen, we are, I'm not above that. I'm not here to upset the physical order of things and to bring about a physical revolution and install myself as the new ruler. If I was here to do that, I'm not going to pay homage. I'm not going to go ahead and pay this temple tax. Uh, I think he's trying to, I think he's trying to remind them there and get them focused again on the kingdom. He's not above the law. Uh, they're going to be arguing about who is the greatest, and he's providing them this example that even as the Son of God, he submits to the authorities. So I think you kind of got that on the one side, and you come back to Mark chapter 9, they're, they're still trying to figure out this, this whole thing. They're focused on the earthly status. They're focused on who's the greatest. And he shows them, you know, if you want to be, be the first, if you want to be on the first, he's like, you need to be the last. And here's an example. Here's a little child. You know, what, what a humbling moment for these individuals again, that have the ability to work miracles. Well, let's let's not forget about that. He gave them the power to work miracles, to heal individuals, to cast out demons. They're arguing about who's going to be the greatest, and he brings them this example of a little child. If you think about it, some of the things that, that came to my mind, in terms of earthly greatness, a child holds no status, no influence. A child does not hold a position of power or authority. Um, They don't have the ability to to grant favors or to help you get ahead. So if you are looking to get ahead in in some kind of an earthly status way, a child is not the one you're gonna go to to help you with that. They're not gonna be able to promote you. They're not gonna be able to give you a better job or a better position. A child is gonna require more effort on your part with little to no payoff for a really, really long time. If if you're you're a parent of small children, that, that probably rings pretty true. You are going to put in a ton of work. You're going to be a servant. You're going to make the sandwiches. You're going to cut the grapes. You're going to cut the pizza. You know, you're, you're, going to be, you're going to be serving this child for a really, really long time. It's been five years and it feels like a really long time and we're just getting started. A child is going to require so much effort on your part and offer very little, especially in terms of physical status, but the payoff is tremendous. The payoff is tremendous and there is nothing greater. There's nothing greater than being in a position to help somebody else grow, to help shape a life, and ultimately to help bring somebody to Christ. And I think that's where he's trying to get them to focus. Is if you want to be great, if you want to be great, think about this child. Think about this child. That's what you can do to be great. You can serve and that's going to allow you to be great. Um, we, we're, we're, not even, we're not even close to finishing. Um, so let's, let's, let's kind of, let's keep, let's keep moving on. Um, as we go throughout the rest of Mark chapter nine, uh, let's see there. John asked this question. Uh, they see somebody else who is casting out. This is in verse 38. They see someone else who's casting out demons. And we, we told him not to do this. And Jesus points out again, you got to stop thinking about earthly status. It's not them and us and you're not part of our circle. So how dare you do this? He said, if he's doing things in my name, and he's, he's on our side. He is working towards the same big picture goal that we are all working towards. Uh, verse 42 through 50, though, is that by contrast, there are individuals that are not working towards this goal. Um, you know, there are going to be those that are going to try to cause you to stumble. And you need to take radical action to prevent that. So this is, this is similar to some of the language that we saw in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, verse 43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Verse 45, if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Verse 47, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. You're going to have to take radical action and you're going to have to make sacrifices if you want to be members of the kingdom. Um, I'd love to spend some more time on this, but we really need to move. uh, Let's go to Matthew chapter 18 and and try to at least finish up some of the things from, from last week. Matthew chapter 18 is continuing on in this same vein. Uh, I see Jesus here emphasizing humility by reminding them of of this task that they have. Uh, Matthew's account really kind of picks up where Mark's account stops. Mark's account stops. Matthew continues on a little bit. Um, Matthew chapter 18 and verse 10, he kind of talks about them and he he gives them this parable. Their task is here to save the lost. Verse 11 of Matthew chapter 18. The son of man has come to save that which was lost. He gives them this parable about an individual that has 99 sheep, but he leaves them to go and to get the one lost sheep. And and we have to have that same kind of attitude of bringing back one that is lost. We've also got to have that same kind of attitude with our brethren. Verses 15 down through about verse 20. We have to take that same attitude in how we deal with our brethren um, and how we go to those individuals that are lost and do whatever we can to bring back a sinning brother. So that leads Peter to ask a question in verse 21. Well, how often should I forgive my brother? Should it be seven times? And Jesus, of course, talks to him, listen, this isn't a checklist. This isn't somebody, uh, this isn't somebody, so, okay, you know, you're on number six. You only got one more strike against me. That, that's, not, that's not the kind of mindset that we should have. Uh, again, if you go back to that example of a child, kids don't keep score like that. Kids don't think that way. We have to change our thinking. We keep that. We keep track of that. We think, man, that person... I have helped that person move three times. Helped them move three times. They haven't done anything for me. And we, and we, hold, we hold this grudge and we keep score. That, that's, that's not the way that we have to think. And he gives them this parable of the unforgiving servant, an individual who has been forgiven of an almost incalculable debt, a debt they could never hope to repay. They're forgiven of it. And that's us. We've been forgiven of that debt. But yet how often do we turn around and hold a grudge for something small, and of course, by contrast, anything is small in compared to the debt of sin that we have. Um, if you go through on, this is, this is just the last thing that we're gonna cover today. Uh, this is gonna help set us up a little bit for, uh, for next week. But in John chapter seven, uh, next week's class is gonna be John chapter seven, eight, and nine. But John chapter seven gives us this time marker Uh, that this is the Feast of Tabernacles, also called the Feast of Booths, also called the Feast of Ingathering. This is the harvest time, so anywhere between September and October, so late in the year. Um, This is one of those three pilgrimage festivals along with Passover and Pentecost. This is the time frame that we're dealing with. Uh, Jesus is dealing with his brothers. Again, individuals that should have been on his side, individuals that should have been there to support him were not, and it seems like they're basically taunting him. Um goading him saying hey, you know Why are you doing all this teaching up here and not spending any time in jerusalem? That's what we're going to have to pick up with uh next week So john chapter 7 8 and 9 Uh next week and and maybe we can make a little bit progress past that but I, I appreciate your time this morning